Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Well, good morning and welcome to Redeemer. Uh, As you've already heard, we are in the second season of Advent, and this season is all about waiting. If the season of Advent is new for you, that is totally okay. This is a season where we look forward uh, to the return uh, of Jesus to come again and to renew and restore this broken world. Uh, And as we wait, though, we wait, uh, we do so as a community. We wait together. Uh, with one another. And the question is, how do we do that waiting? What's that waiting supposed to look like? And that's what our New Testament reading uh, is all about today. But before we do that, I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine with me that you could create the perfect community. What would it look like? Let's start with who it would include. Who would be the people that would populate this community? Maybe you'd start with your family, Maybe throw in a few close friends. Where would this community be? Where would it be located? Maybe you have a perfect location already scoped out. Maybe it's the beach or the mountains, your preference, of course. Take whatever group you thought of, the people and the place, and start to think about what type of practices, what type of habits that community would need to have in order to succeed, to flourish. Like, what would make that community last? Maybe it would be a weekly meal. Maybe it'd be a shared commitment to a value, value or goal like love or faithfulness or loyalty. And so that'd be the positive. This is what we are community to be built around. But how would you anticipate where the breakdowns would come in that community? In the perfect community, where would that begin to unravel? Perhaps an argument, a misspoken word, someone not caring enough? I mean, either way, no matter how you fill that community, no matter where you place it, at some point, that community is going to face challenges, and how would you overcome those? We can naively think that community is what happens naturally. Like, take a bunch of people, put them in a place, magically sprinkle in some values, and voila, you have a community. Not so fast. Here's the unexpected idea about community. Community is really, really hard to flourish, to make work, to succeed. It's really, really hard to pull off. It's not as easy as we think. Uh, I've been listening to a podcast lately. I have a graphic on the screen. It's called Nice Try. And in this series, they take 10 different scenarios and 10 different episodes where people tried to create the perfect utopian community. And spoiler alert, guess what? They all failed. Not one of them succeeded. Each and every one blew up, and the community disbanded often in anger, bitterness, and disappointment. And the crazy thing is that each group was like optimally selected. Just the right number of people, just the right skills and habits, just the right ages, both genders. The location was strategically picked out or even built in some cases because we want this to succeed. And they all had a creed that they followed. They had communal rules and values that they thought would bind them together, but each one dramatically failed. Why? Well, to repeat, the unexpected idea about community is that it's not easy. It's actually really, really hard. And today we find ourselves in a New Testament reading at the end of the book of Romans. 
And when we flip over to Romans, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to do that now to chapter 15. We find that Paul is thrust into the opposite situation of a perfect community. He didn't get to pick the church in Rome. He didn't get to plan it with just his, you know, right disciples. Uh, this is a community that he is thrust into. And this community is a community on, in conflict and on the verge of collapse. They have almost disbanded. And in chapters 12 through 15 of Romans, before our reading today, Paul is wading through all the issues that are dividing this Roman community. And so he writes to a really important church who's going through some really important problems. And these problems facing the community in the first years after uh, Jesus' death are pretty significant. And this letter is meant to help them to be a unified community, to be the community that God has called them to be. And in our final section today, the one that we just heard read in Romans 15, Paul prays a prayer over them as a final means to help them see that their unity is part of God's big story. And I think Paul's message to this community in Rome also has some really important things to say to us as a community of Jesus followers as well. And so let's dive in. Look at verse 1. We see the division there immediately. In verse 1, we get a shorthand uh, for the two different groups. It's the weak uh, and the strong. You see those two terms there. Now there's a huge debate about just who these groups are, but what we know is that they do not get along. They have arguments, they have disagreements, they've hurt one another. And not only do they get along, they're fighting, failing to talk to one another, and failing ultimately to worship together as a community. They've gone to their corners, they are not talking. And although we may look at this and say, okay, well, what's the big deal? Why doesn't just one group get over it? And hey, why don't we just disagree and um, just let division be part of the church experience? Kind of used to it. Why does Paul care so much about this? Because I think in this passage, Paul seems to think that that division is a bigger problem than we may give it credit for. We're like, well, people, people disagree. It happens. And Paul says, no, 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 what's happening here is really, really important. And from chapters 12 through 15 of Romans, we know that they've divided uh, just over non-essential issues. Like, for example, this is not what's happening. It's not like one group is arguing for murdering people, and the other group is like, nah, we shouldn't do that. And Paul says, work it out. Like, that's not the type of argument they're having over big issues. No, this is conflict more along the lines of people feeling insulted, people feeling offended, people feeling belittled by another group. These are personal grievances. These are small issues. But let's assume that each group thinks that they are in the right, that they've got the moral high ground on this other group for whatever the disagreement, whatever the offense. Let's assume that the strong, whoever they are, are saying, I'm right, they're wrong. Let's use that as we go into verse 2, because this is what's surprising. Paul says in verse 2, each group, it's on the screen, should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Pause here. Notice how opposite Paul's approach is from, I would assume, mine, I know, but maybe ours. Uh, I mean, if I'm in the strong, if I'm in the right category, well, I'll tend to think that, well, that person is in my debt because they've done something against me, and now they owe me for that thing. And Paul actually flips that on its head and says the, the opposite. 
Let's say you're in a conflict and you think you're in the right. Paul says, great. Now how can you seek to build up that other person and to seek their well-being? And it's the opposite way we sometimes approach it. He says we ought to please our neighbor. The idea in this word here, as we'll see in the next verse, is that self-interest is kind of sacrificed. Making ourselves priority number one. Uh, My self-interest in a conflict or argument is usually to protect myself and to protect my space or my argument, right? So I'm going to batter down the hatches, protect what I have. And too often in our disagreements, we tend to operate with a zero-sum game. Wins and losses, right? Zeros and ones. And this scorched earth policy is rather unhelpful for building a flourishing community. Because again, for a community to flourish, to succeed, there has to be a healthy way to handle difference of opinion and conflict. And Paul says that there is. The purpose of that conflict, as we're going to see, has a good purpose for getting us to sacrifice our self-interest and for building up our neighbor. And so picture with me, picture with me maybe a hypothetical or maybe a very real experience. You've had a disagreement with someone. What do you do? What's step two? Maybe you were at school and you heard someone talking bad about you behind your back. Conflict, disagreement. You shouldn't have done that. What happens next? Uh, Maybe it's a work situation and someone hasn't given you uh, the credit that you deserved for your hard work. You put in the hours, you put in the overtime, and it's like nothing ever changed. Uh, Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent and a relationship with a spouse or even the kids isn't being appreciated enough. Conflict, disagreement, insult, offense. What happens next? Maybe someone just generally offended you by something they said or did. They were careless with their words. What do we do with these conflicts? Well, one option, of course, is to quit and walk away. Say, like, that's it, I'm done, bye. Dead to me, right? Now, the only problem with that theory is that you're going to have an ever-dwindling number of uh, associates if we continue this pattern, right? It's going to be a very lonely world um, if we operate on that way. Uh, Another option we might ask is what in this conflict, what is the purpose of my actions? Like, what am I trying to do? What am I hoping to accomplish through this conflict? And Paul's admonition here is precisely the opposite of what I'm going to assume is how the majority of us would respond to look for the good of that other person and not our own. Paul can do this because Paul is so shaped by the story of Jesus that it affects the way he sees conflict. So conflict is not out there disconnected from the story of the gospel or the story of Jesus. No, for Paul, Jesus sees conflict through the story of Jesus. It affects the way he sees conflict and community. Take a look at verse 3. In verse 3, notice what Paul says. He replays the story of Jesus. And it's a really short story. He says, for Christ did not please himself. If we want to boil down the Gospels, Paul says, read through there, nothing was for his own advantage. And the life of Jesus is the pattern for Jesus' followers. Paul says it shapes how we react. Jesus looked to serve others. He says in Mark 10 that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And did Jesus face conflict? Yeah. Have you read his interactions with the disciples? They're arguing all the time. But Christ did not please himself. Now, I'll grant this. That all seems well and good when it's positive, right? 
We're willing to sacrifice if it's for a greater good. But notice what Paul does here. Paul applies it to the inverse. He applies it in a, in a negative situation, when it's not for our own good. He goes on to quote a passage from the Psalms at Psalm 69.9, and he says, The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. In short, Paul says that when we experience conflict in community, it's an opportunity to be Jesus to one another. So when someone insults or offends you, Paul says that falls on Christ. How can Paul ask us to do that? Question for you. What if the conflict, what if the insult, what if the offense was already paid for? How might that free us up to seek the good of another person? I mean, what if we didn't need to bear the weight or take up the mantle of payment for that issue? I mean, isn't that what we're really going for when someone makes us mad or offends us or insults us? I can't believe you did that to me, so I'm going to make you pay for it, right? There's a debt that's there. You're now in my debt. I'm going to play the silence game. I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to avoid you so that you begin to feel like I felt and you can pay the penalty. You are now in a debt. But what if the story of Jesus so radically reoriented our hearts that when we experience someone who hurts us, we can say that pain has fallen on Jesus and I'm not responsible for exacting the revenge, for exacting the repayment because it's already been paid for. Might that be the very issue at stake that when resolved graciously frees us to view our neighbors not as our enemies, but rather as someone we can love and seek to build up? Because you don't owe me. I think it can. And by the way, this doesn't make it easy. Actually, it's really, really hard. It comes at a cost, a personal cost. Similar to the lines of, I, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And as we await the return of Jesus, it allows us a freedom to build a community that God desires. Uh, but maybe you're sitting here now and thinking, okay, that seems like quite the lofty ideal. I mean, the theory sounds great. I mean, sure, if we could only be like that, that would definitely be a better city, world, family. But we can't, so why try? It's discouraging, right? Life and experience is discouraging. But notice where Paul goes in verses 4 and 5. They'll be on the screen. Paul says that the antidote to our skepticism is Scripture, combined with our faithfulness, produces hope. Scripture, our endurance, and hope. Watch what Paul does here in the next few verses. He says in the first part of verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction to teach us. The scriptures are here to instruct us in how to live out God's story today. Learning and education is at the heart of what it means to be a Jesus follower. Uh, put another way, being a Jesus follower doesn't come without some degree of learning what it means to be a Jesus follower. That's not a natural, like, just download the info, I'm just going to start living it out. There's a learning here. So that's where scripture comes in and instructs us. Notice what Paul did. He just did that in verse 3. He took Psalm 69.9, the insults of you have fallen on me, and he goes to the community in Rome and says, this is for you in that conflict. Scripture instructs. 
And Paul says scripture has a way of encouraging us along with sustaining our endurance. So just how do the scriptures do that? How do they encourage us and sustain us? Well, a running metaphor may help us. So as some of you know, I've been to a number of races, half marathons, marathons. Of course, not as a participant. Let's not get carried away. But I played another, I would argue, equally valuable role, that of sign holder. Sign holder. Maybe you've done this before. Lisa may be the runner-in-chief in our house, but I am the encourager-in-chief. Take my role very seriously. And I've had the valuable job of holding the encouragement sign. In fact, there's a whole community of people like me, made up of non-runners, whose job it is to provide encouragement to the people running. So how does it work? Maybe you've been to a race and seen this. The runners are running, right? We don't know why. They just are. Um, <laughs> like, okay. Seems, seems like a lot of work. Um, and you have people who've really figured it out, who are standing along the side of the road, often with humorous but encouraging signs, telling the runners what? You can do this. You got it. You're going to make it. You're going to complete the race. Now, I'm not sure if there's any scientific research, but I think the race would be really, really different if there was no encouragement. The runners, of course, still prepare. They get out there, they run, but they can get discouraged and they can begin to doubt at mile like 20 that I don't know if I'm going to make it. I think I'm going to fall over and just this is where my life ends, right? I think that about the first mile. Um, <laughs> So they can get discouraged and doubt and wonder if they're going to complete it. And the signs of the fans, of their family, plus that runner's faithfulness of putting one foot in front of the other, produces hope that they can finish the race. I think Paul sees a similar activity going on in the power of the scriptures. Take a look at verses 4 and 5 again. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. Paul deeply understands the challenges of a Christian community. And so he says the scriptures are there providing us encouragement, saying you can do this. You got it. We're here for you. The spirit of God is at work in the community. Do not be discouraged by conflict. You can work through it. You can become the community that God desires. There is hope. And so this raises the importance of reading Scripture as a community. That's why we read it each week. We're reminded, we're encouraged, we're challenged, we're given hope. And it's one of the ways hope springs up in a really discouraging situation. It provides hope as we await the return of Jesus. And Paul's pretty confident that it works that way. And why can he be so confident? Take a look at verses 5 and 6. Paul reminds them of the character of God. May the God who gives endurance and the God who gives encouragement, give you the same attitude towards each other that Christ had. Notice God gives what God desires. God wants endurance. God wants faithfulness over the long haul. And both Scripture and the God of the Scriptures provide the great gifts of endurance and encouragement, which spark our hope. Now, here's the thing. We don't often think about community and endurance, but the more you're around a community investing the more you realize how much endurance is needed. Why? Because people can be really 
really difficult. Have you noticed? I mean, of course, not anyone here at Redeemer, but you can imagine like another community, right? Like they really struggle with that. Um, Seriously, though, living with people, sharing life together is really, really hard work. It's hard because anytime we move into close proximity with one another, we also move closer to the potential for hurt. We move closer. It's not easy. It doesn't happen naturally. Community takes intention and endurance to succeed. Anyone can last a week. But how do you build a community that lasts generations over the long haul? How do we radically commit ourselves to one another here in this community and carve out space to say, you matter to me? Again, it's counterintuitive. It's unexpected. But community doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't happen without effort. Community happens as a result of intentional choices and the endurance of those choices over time. Community happens by the result of intentional choices and the endurance of those choices over time. That's for a friendship, that's for a marriage, that's for a church, that's for a community. Consistently showing up and saying, I'm going to be here, especially when conflict happens. Like any relationship, they thrive or die based on the attention given to them. And often we can have a fight or flight or fight experience sometimes when we experience conflict in community. We enter into some turbulent waters and we get worried and sometimes we withdraw, either because of shame or embarrassment or frustration or anger. But community is where we get to practice those great Christian virtues of love, patience, and forgiveness. In fact, it's in conflict that we find whether we actually believe them to be true or not. Forgiveness, patience, and love sound great until they actually have to be exercised. Especially when we're the one exercising them. Jesus teaches us that genuine community is a place where hope is held, forgiveness is extended, trust is formed, peace is proclaimed, difference is welcomed and celebrated, And persons are enabled to be who God has created them to be, fully human. So where does this call to endurance and community find you? We're all in some form of community, aren't we? Friends, families, a church. These are all versions of communities. People put together in a particular place for a particular time, for a particular reason. And does the story of Jesus and the scriptures have anything to say to a conflict we're in the midst of right now? Or maybe a conflict you've been in. Why resolve that? Why reconcile? Paul continues. Paul says the goal, the reason for that reconciliation, the reason to maintain hope, is that so with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is unified worship among the community, which is precisely the difficulty that Paul is addressing in Rome, in which all communities, Christian communities, face together, both then and now. And what does it look like practically? Well, verse 7 is simple but complex. Welcome one another. Accept one another. Be reconciled. As we conclude, remember when I asked you to picture your ideal community? Who would you invite? Where would it be? What would be the goals and values? Well, the problem with that is that the Christian community is far from any of our ideal communities. And actually, it should 
be that way. We often find unity in conformity or similarities. I hang out with people like me because that's easier. You look like me, we come from the same place, we share the same things. And that's actually very true. That is a lot easier, but very much not a Christian community. This is what makes Christian community so radical and so radically difficult. It's bringing together people who wouldn't otherwise be together and trying to forge a common life together. And this unity is a sign of God at work in the community, overcoming differences, working through problems and difficulties with the eye on loving one another well into the unity that God has called us to. And that's what makes Advent so, so incredibly important. We find that we are a community in waiting, but we wait in hope. The Christian community becomes a sign to the world amidst the brokenness that God is at work and there is hope coming in his return. And that these Christian communities, our relationships with one another, become a sign of hope that there can be a different way to be human. There can be a different way to be in community. So how do we become that community of hope? Verse 13 is rather important. We overflow with the hope of God's vision for this community only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christian community cannot be envisioned, it cannot be lived out, it cannot be practiced unless fueled by God himself, his very presence. In short, Christian community is a work of the Holy Spirit. In the season of Advent, it's a sign of hope of a new world. Our life together here will only succeed if the Spirit is at work in and through us to God's glory. So may we be a community marked by faithful waiting in hope as we seek to live out a small picture of the coming kingdom in this Advent season. Amen.